Peter Gabriel left Genesis the year that this week's album was released. The U.S. pulled out of Vietnam that year as well, and honestly, we probably could have used our own Phil Collins to get us out of that jam. But then let's say that the U.S. did win the war. What happens to CCR? Without all those angsty Vietnam War films, do they still have a career? And what, are Hueys just supposed to chopper their way across the jungle in silence? You can't run through the jungle in silence. But I'm getting a little lost in the rice paddies. Let's get back to this week's band who, like Genesis, also successfully shed its lead singer in favor of a new one, which inspired the subject matter of this week's album. Have you guessed it yet? The year was 1975, the band was Pink Floyd, and the album was Wish You Were Here, today on Two Dudes and Tunes. Good evening, good morning, or good whatever to you all. My name is Chris Robinson, and I am one of your crazy diamonds for this disc-oriented discussion. The other crazy diamond who is going to cuss and discuss this album with me is Wood Johnson. Wood, welcome to the machine. Man, I am just glad to be a part of this machine this week. Yeah, I'm glad you, I'm glad you made it. Uh, you did some traveling in some pretty rowdy weather. Yeah, so I uh, I thought I was escaping Snowpocalypse 2021, and uh, I brought it home with me, and then spent most of the weekend oh. most of the weekend without electricity. My heater took a dump, and my wife got stuck at uh, her work. She's a nurse, and they held her for four days. So it was just Jeez. me, just me, a four month old, in a house with no heat, and. Uh, we uh, we we made it, so we're here, and we're going to talk about uh, wish you were here. <laughs> well, man, I'm glad that you made it. So, no heat? Did, do you have like a fireplace or something? So, what what's the deal with that? Well, I probably exaggerated a little bit. We have a uh, a two story house, and so one of my biggest pet peeves about this house is it has separate air conditioning and heating for upstairs and downstairs. Uh. And so, last year, one of the joys of home ownership, I spent like. $10,000 on a new AC and heat for upstairs. Ooh. And uh, with the understanding that this year I'm going to have to replace the downstairs unit and it totally took a dump during the worst snowstorm yeah. in San Antonio history. So Gee we're going to replace whiz. it a little bit earlier than we thought. Oh man, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm glad y'all are doing okay. It's Megan and I have really I don't know, we've lucked out. I, we haven't uh you know knock on wood we haven't lost power um and we've been trickling our faucets you know to keep the pipes from freezing up and so far that's worked um but yeah it's it has been cold well other than being cold what else is new with you man uh well let's see i've been digging into zelda breath of the wild and i have great game Oh, man, it is so enjoyable. I was talking with Megan uh, yesterday because she was watching me play the game. And one of the things I really like about Nintendo games that I've noticed in general is they kind of unfold the rules of the game slowly. 
And the more you play and the more you're in the world, kind of the more is revealed to you. And so that's been, it's been kind of fun. Like as soon as you master like a limited set of skills, like more of them are expanded to you. But like beyond just the gameplay, like the music in that game is fantastic. The music is fantastic. The art is beautiful. Like it plays Mm. so well. Oh man. It's one of those games. Um, I did not own a Nintendo Switch before Breath of the Wild came out, but that game uh-huh. got me to go buy a Switch. Oh, and, uh, nice. I watched I watched my sister play it and was like, I have to have this. And uh, yeah. it's one of those games that's definitely a lot better played on the TV, though. Like, dock that thing and don't play it handheld because oh, it's yeah, just absolutely. Too, too beautiful. Well, and the sound design, uh, I mean, since we're a music podcast, we should probably talk about this. Like, the sound design is so excellent the way that uh music kind of cues whenever bad guys are around the kind of music that plays when you're working through um oh what are they called those like puzzle rooms um the temples yeah when you're like playing through a temple the music is different than when you're out and about. And like yesterday I did a temple that was near those like traveling gypsies that sell mm-hmm. horses. Mm-hmm. And there was that like really pleasant pastoral, like, rec- I don't know if it's a recorder or flute or whatever, but like, it's a uh, fun game just to listen to, let alone being in that world and like playing. So that's, that's really, <laughs> that's what I've been up to because it's so cold and frozen everywhere. There's not really anything to do. Nice. Well, that's definitely a a good uh, a good use of your time for sure. Well, yeah, it's fun. Uh, <laughs> no, but nobody is benefiting from it. Uh, but I've been, I guess. Hey, there is peace in your soul and a bunch more dead zombies. So. Oh yes, yes. I've been killing a ton of goblins. Well, what's uh, is there anything new with you, or is it basically just making it through your tri- your like trial run of Alaska? Uh, well, I mean, I seem it feels like every week I kind of bag on work or whatever, but this week has been pretty heavy with work with you know the Southwest United States not really being ready for any sort of winter weather event and learning yeah. about all the disaster recovery type stuff that you have to do uh, in my job. Uh, personally though, I have spent a lot of time reading Dungeons and Dragons books, uh, and then, Fantastic. and then I've been listening to, uh, a couple of Al Green albums from the seventies and that man is so underappreciated. Uh. Um, I had kind of, uh, I'd been listening to just a playlist about, uh, like releases that, you know, we think you'd like or whatever. And they just released a remastered version of his album, uh, let's stay together. And, uh, mm-hmm. that may or may not have been added to our list this week because it is just a great album. Well, I am going to download it to my phone. Al green is one of those names that I've heard time and time again. And unfortunately I've not ever listened to Al green. I, I mean, oh, I'm sure I've heard his music, but Al green I, is like 1970s, like Foo Fighters. He's eponymous. He's everywhere. So you will yeah. have heard like every song on this album at some point or another in your life. Awesome. I'm excited about it. Oh, speaking of things we're listening to. Um, so, uh, some of our listeners might be aware that chick Korea jazz pianist, he passed away last week 
as of this recording. And so I've been really digging into his stuff because my dad had one of his albums and I always really enjoyed it. Um, enough that I like remembered his name, but I never really dug into his work much mm-hmm. past that. And so I hearing about him passing away, I did a quick Google search of, you know, like top 10 Chick Korea albums and his seventies fusion stuff is really cool. I think I, I sent you a link or not a link, but you know, I, I told you about it. Uh, his group returned to forever, uh, recorded an album the same year as wish you were here, actually 1975 called no mystery. Um, and man, it is a cool listen. I encourage our listeners, like y'all go out and check out No Mystery by Return to Forever because it is sweet. So I listened to it when you texted it to me and I had never even heard of him before. So it was really kind of enlightening for me. But I really liked hearing what was considered contemporary, like progressive jazz. Yeah. Uh, whatever you would consider. You know, when when you hear of Pink Floyd at this f- phase of their career, they're very progressive rock and to kind of hear, you know, what they were not necessarily competing against, but what they were, what they were up against at the time. It's pretty yeah. cool to see how they influenced each other because there are yeah. bits and pieces of both in both albums. Uh, well, you know, like Rick Wright was big into jazz, and while none of the guys in Pink Floyd had the chops of, you know, anybody in the fusion scene at that time, they're both definitely drawing on the same like jam band energy that was going around in the seventies and boy, it's, it's super exciting to listen to fusion from the seventies to me, just because it was like the bleeding edge of musicianship and stuff like today, driving around in the car, uh, a, a Jeff Beck tune from the album wired popped up. And that album is similarly exciting because there's a lot of the same, jazz and funk and rock roots uh jan hammer who's like this really amazing keyboardist she is a prominent like she's a part of the band in that jeff beck album and she like tears down the house with some of her like solos and stuff it's really cool but yeah that's that is one of my favorite eras of jazz is like 70s progressive like fusion or whatever you want to call it nice well, hey, I think that covers everything in our show notes for kind of general chit-chat. Um, before we get started with today's album, if you're enjoying our discussions or you like what you're hearing on the podcast, please leave us a rating or a review on the podcatcher of your choice. Thumbs up, stars, whatever it is, drop us a line. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, and we'll probably end up using it in a segment in the future uh, if it makes us laugh or uh, is really, really, really good. Yeah, and uh, if you guys want to contact us about anything that we've said on the podcast, please send us a message at two dudes and tunes at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at two dudes and tunes. We'll post relevant pictures of album art or, you know, stuff we've been listening to, that kind of thing. So feel free to uh, drop a line, holler at us there if you are so inclined. And hey, I'm not above posting a picture of my two dogs freaking out at nine inches of snow in my backyard. <laughs> oh man, that I felt bad because you sent you sent me that message that morning, 
and in my like like kind of semi-tired weekend stupor i just kind of looked at it as like Oh boy, his dogs are sure having a fun time running around <laughs> in the snow. I don't I don't think I turned the audio on, so I don't know if your fire alarm was going off. It probably was, and I just like didn't realize. But you can expect that kind of grade A uh genuine life content on our Instagram feed. Alright, uh so this is a pink floyd part de for uh for us the first album was the wall which uh we considered a war crime uh and that was on your list right the wall was you yep yeah so this album was on mine uh and so i'm curious that is this wasn't the first time you'd heard it right oh no not at all um yeah honestly i really don't remember the first time that i heard this album because it was something that was in my dad's kind of everyday music catalog. Um, he was one of those guys who, you know, had a stereo set in our family living room that I wasn't allowed to go in that room at all. Oh. Uh, but he had lots of records. And I remember, and it's funny, when I was doing research for this album, I remember the the vinyl album in their living room. He would put up whatever he was listening to on, like, a stand so he could, like, oh, look nice. at the artwork. Yeah, uh, yeah. there in the room. And I remember it was the alternative artwork for this album, which I have always assumed was the real artwork for this album. And then mm. when it was released, the album artwork was changed to the classic white picture in the Hollywood backlot. Um, the artwork my dad had was like a black background and kind of a cartoony drawing of two robots holding hands with like a desert and one half of it and like an ocean scene in the background of the other half. Uh. And in doing research for this, I learned that that was alternative artwork that was only released on certain pressings. And so my dad at the time had a fairly rare pressing. It looks like that is super um, cool. But so when you, when you sent, when we downloaded this album to listen to, I was going through my Spotify trying to find that album artwork, not reading titles. Oh. And I was <laughs> lost. I was like, where is it? I know it's here somewhere. That's funny. That's interesting that they that they uh, released albums that had that artwork on it because that was the we'll we'll probably talk about this a little further on down the road but they released this album like they would sell it packaged in this like matte black mm-hmm. cellophane with that image on it. It's interesting that I I kind of wonder if that was like not like a mistake but if you know, whoever was responsible, responsible for pressing it and releasing it. Maybe they were just like, Oh, is this the artwork? You know, like it does sound like kind of rare and valuable to me anyway. Now that you, now that you mentioned that it may be that this album was still in the cellophane. Cause my dad was really good about like slicing down the cellophane right where the album rolled out. And so most of his Uh, albums, the last time I saw them were still in the cellophane. And I was like, you've never even listened to these. And he's like, no, they're all open. See, so oh, it may actually man. be that this one was in the cellophane still all those years that I remember it. That and is really cool. Your dad was a true believer. My dad was a true believer in music, period, which is pretty cool. Like, he has some pretty yeah. cool taste. Um, as we've done this podcast, um, a lot of these albums have been albums that I was exposed to early in my life. And yeah. I've been able to sit down and talk to him about them and be like, what were you thinking when you first heard this? And here's what I'm thinking now. And it's kind of been a cool journey to, to have those conversations with him. 
Yeah, I um, my dad has asked me a couple times because you know I've told him that we're working on this podcast, and he said, "Well, well, can I listen to it?" And I've told him like we're trying to get you know we're trying to just to give everybody a peek behind the kimono, as it were. We're trying to get these recorded so that we can take a break and not leave you all with nothing, you know. So if we record a backlog or whatever, we have some to do. But um, anyway, all that to say. I feel like for both of us, dads fill a prominent role in helping figure out musical taste. Cause that was how I heard about Pink Floyd to begin with. I was learning to play guitar my freshman year of high school. And, you know, you, take lessons and your guitar teacher will remind you of some things, but I had kind of, you know, I had worked through some of that stuff and listened to some of it. And so I was asking dad for more, you know, I was like real hungry for more music. And so one of the bands he suggested was Pink Floyd. And so I got started with dark side of the moon. And of course, like loved that album and like, just like dived into it. But I had heard like, wish you were here on the radio or something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, did some Googling and went to Barnes and Noble and bought wish you were here. And so that was my, my, like the beginning of my obsession <laughs> with, with Pink Floyd was really this album. So I think the first time that I was really conscious of this album and put the dots together of this is Pink Floyd and this is wish you were here as a whole album was probably when I was in the sixth or seventh grade. Um, my, parents borrowed a 1993 conversion van from my grandfather like amazing we're talking <laughs> it was a white conversion van like almost tour bus quality conversion van uh-huh and at this point in time it's probably like 15 years old so it's not new it's not you know the greatest thing ever but it had like the crushed green velvet interior yes. and the track oh, lights <laughs> and my parents drove that thing and it had a tv which was awesome like with a built-in vcr Oh yeah. Um, and uh, they drove that thing from San Antonio to Reno, Nevada. And I remember it's like a 26 hour drive, uh, driving straight through. And my parents were driving it straight through. And I remember sitting uh, in the front seat uh, next mm -hmm. to my dad between Las Vegas and Reno somewhere in the middle of the night. And I was vaguely aware of what like area 51 was. And it was out there somewhere and my dad was listening to this album in the cassette player. And oh. I just remember being like haunted by it because the music is just so great for that kind of. Oh, that's whatever. perfect. You could not have had a more perfect way to experience that album. That's it was, magical. It was a pretty magical 45 minutes. I'm not going to lie. It's one of those things yeah. that I talked to my dad about this last week or earlier this week. And uh, he doesn't remember any of that, but I'm like, no, I'm certain of it. Like, he's like, it's probably the kind of thing I would have done at that point in my life. Like, well, he did expose you to the wall when you were a way wee too lad. Young, so, way too young. <laughs> I am sure that he was just throwing all kinds of stuff at you. Like, oh, let's see how he handles this. That's fantastic. I my my recollection of this album is really strongly tied to learning guitar mm -hmm. because like I said, like dark side of the moon was what kind of hooked me on pink Floyd. But man, something about this album, uh, especially 
you know, being a only like a year and a half, couple of years into my journey learning to play guitar, I heard, you know, the opening strains of Shine On You Crazy Diamond and his like really ethereal kind of mournful solo at the beginning of that song. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, this, I want to be that guy. Like, I want to be David Gilmore. And so this is one of the first albums that I remember sitting down and getting on ultimateguitar.com and looking up tabs and trying to learn, like, what is this? And I even went out and bought the uh, the Pulse, mm-hmm. like, live DVD where uh, David Gilmore and company go out and they've got that huge circle projector behind them and oh man i i mean if it were a vinyl i would have like played the grooves like into oblivion you know like i watched that dvd so much so this is this was an album that i i'm sure it was one of the first few that i put on our list because it's just so inimitable you know so one of the things i thought of when i listened to this album uh, on my way home from tulsa last week after it got picked and we can cut this if I'm remembering wrong, but did yeah. you play a brass instrument of some point in high school? Uh, yes, I sure did. I played trumpet. Okay. Uh, and then senior year, I got braces, and it was pretty much all guitar from that point. But I did play trumpet for a long time. So for some reason, I thought it was sax when I was remembering back to those days. And so no, I, was I, wish. I was wondering if the <laughs> solo uh, at the intro of this album had anything to do with your conversion, but nah, it doesn't matter at all. It was a trumpet. Never mind. No, I mean, Dick Perry is fantastic. I'm, I will sit and listen to him play on Floyd albums all day long, but unfortunately there's no trumpet in Pink no. Floyd. As far as no. I know, <laughs> thank Jesus. There is no trumpet. In Pink Floyd. Well, Hey though, the thing is though, um, one of the crazy, like what could have been things in music to me, one of the craziest is that, uh, towards the, what wound up being the end of his life, Jimi Hendrix was really itching to get together with Miles Davis and record. So that's some trumpet playing that I could get behind. Miles Davis is, he should be on our list. I could, I could listen to Miles Davis play trumpet all night, every night. Oh man. Well, I'd, I'll add one of his, I I can easily think of at least one or two albums that should be on there. Uh, So we'll, we'll remedy that. Hey, I was uh, I was looking at our show notes here earlier, and uh, one of the things in your section was a story about one of your early uh, band experiences. Oh yeah. Okay. So um, the best, like the compliment to me uh, that I was like somebody complimented me. The compliment that is stuck in my head, pretty much since I received it. Uh, I was in a band in high school, like pretty much any, anybody who like learns to play an instrument, you get together with your friends or whatever. And first of all, we could not come up with a name for our band. Great Uh, sign for success. (laughs) Yeah. We, we were not long, uh, for this world creatively, but we sat down and we thought, okay, uh, why don't we just make our band name an acronym based on the first letters of the names of all the people who are in the band. (laughs) And so what we arrived at was rice, Ralph play guitar, Ian played bass, Chris, yours truly play guitar as well. And Eric. (laughs) And so we 
uh, we played at this like battle of the bands thing at our school. Uh, and it was a lot of fun because the way the high school that I went to was laid out was it was a giant, giant square, basically kind of looked like a prison, like (laughs) big, big corner towers. And then, you know, like three stories high. And so in the center, we had this giant, uh, uh, kind of concave area where they had painted a big M. I went to Douglas MacArthur high school. So it was a big M, but at kind of the head of it, there was a set of steps and so whatever organization that put on this high school battle of the bands, we got to play on this like dais basically with all these people down like a big, and you know, I'm sure it was like, like 25 to 30 people. It was not very big, but I remember, you know, this is my sophomore year of high school and this is the first time I'm playing guitar in front of people. And it felt like I was playing at like Wembley stadium or whatever. Nice. Uh, but we had been jamming for a few weeks and we like musically we had chops enough to like play well, but none of us had ever written songs and none of us had really sung in front of people. So we thought, ah, screw it. We'll just like put together a few instrumental jams. And we won third place just being like this, like probably kind of crappy instrumental group. (laughs) Uh, But it was like a by vote thing. So we won third place but um i remember being in the lunch line like the next day and our bassist ian came up to me and he was like hey man my dad really liked your playing and i was like oh yeah thanks i appreciate that because you know like everybody's parents are like yeah yeah but he was like yeah uh he said um said it reminded him of uh, that guy you really like, Billy Gilmore. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I was probably pretty snooty. I was like, you mean David Gilmore? <laughs> he was like, yeah, that guy. And that was like the only thing I was trying to do as this young guitarist was like, if I could just sound cool like David Gilmore. And so that like, if I'm feeling down about playing, I'm like, well, that one time in high school, I did sound like David Gilmore to one guy's dad. (laughs) And so that's, that's like, that's probably one reason this is stuck with me is like, I was shooting for something that I loved so very much. And he was like, yeah, man, like one guy says you nailed it. Hey man, I think we've talked a little bit about our experience with this uh, album for the first time, but let's talk a little bit about kind of the background behind the album. Uh, Anybody who's a real big Pink Floyd fan, knows that, you know, Sid Barrett was kind of the original creator for the band. Uh, He kind of formulated it uh, in his early life. And um, I was doing a lot of research on Sid this week. Uh, We'd kind of mentioned him a little bit when we were talking about The Wall, but I figured today would be a good time to kind of stop and kind of recognize where Pink Floyd had come from and kind of where they were headed, because this is kind of at the apex of Pink Floyd being Pink Floyd. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we can both agree that the wall was definitely a, uh, a mark towards the downward spiral. Uh, and this was kind of right in between that period between dark side of the moon and, and, uh, the wall and it's kind of yeah. the end of the line. But looking back at, uh, Sid, uh, Sid was born in 1946. And one of the reasons I want to bring that up is a lot of people are understand that, he was with Floyd. He founded Floyd. Uh, they had a 
bunch of different names before they were actually Pink Floyd. Mm-hmm. And one of them that I thought was great was uh, this band was known as the Megadeths. Oh, aren't you so cool? <laughs> for about six months. Yeah, like, so great. Yeah, like you were like 50 years ahead of your time, man. Yeah, they really were. Um, They're heavy before heavy was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one of the reasons I wanted to mention that he was born in 46 is in my background, um, I have a nursing degree, which I don't use at all. But one of the things that they teach you to kind of look for and kind of understand is mental illness. And Mm. one of the things that has been speculated about Sid is the reason he departed uh, the band was that he had some form of schizophrenia or bipolar Mm -hmm. disorder. But his family has always denied it. Um, When he left the band, he would have been about 25, 26 years old uh, when, when it finally collapsed and they kind of booted him out. Uh, and that is the the age that late onset schizophrenia develops uh, for oh, people. Interesting. And so you couple that with uh, Sid was a huge fan of psychedelic drugs. Yeah. Uh, before yeah. we even really knew what they did to your brain, and so you combine a predisposition probably with something like schizophrenia, um, you end up and pile a whole bunch of drugs on it, and you end up with stories where. Uh, Sid went away for a weekend and came back as a totally different person uh, yeah. in, in the, the late 60s. And, um, you know, he'd just kind of show up to uh, to recording sessions, and he went from being this creative force who was really engaging and outspoken to being just kind of a shell of himself and really turned inward. And uh, one of the interesting anecdotes that I read was about how... Um, he would show up to concerts and he'd play one chord the whole the whole concert, um, yeah. and then uh, he went on a, a TV show. Um, at one point, uh, I think it was at Dick Clark's Bandstand, yeah, and was just a real jerk to Dick Clark. And Dick Clark mm-hmm. um, was really polite about, well, they just got off a plane from London, you know, whatever to to get over it. But eventually, the band had to decide no more. Said you're you're a distraction from the band and that's, that's really hard. Um, you know, luckily they were able to bring in David Gilmore to cover for Sid to, to make up that missing piece. But, uh, I see here that you wanted to talk a little bit about how does a band move on from a, a, a member being ousted? Yeah, it's, you know, I think, I think there are a number of things that at least in my personal experience, uh, make, communicating when you're that young hard one one of the things i think the most obvious thing is like guys just aren't we aren't good at talking about our feelings right and so when you are wrapped up in something as kind of uh, something intimate like a band you know you are laying yourself open a lot whether you realize it or not you know um and so to cut somebody out of that or to try and make some sort of decision based on like, well, I think that for the sake of what the rest of us want to do, we should cut this person out is, is really hard. And I think a lot of people just don't ever have the conversation. The experience that I had in rice was that, one of the guys um, 
you know, was just kind of on a different track than the rest of us. Not even creatively just speaking, but just as far as life goes, like he was having problems in class and just like wasn't super interested, wasn't really around as much. Um, and he wasn't a dumb guy. He just was one of those people who kind of goes against the grain or whatever. And the rest of us, like I wanted a soldier on and, and keep him on. Cause he was my friend and he and I had more musical opinions in common than I did with the rest of the guys. But I didn't, I didn't know how to, you know, communicate how I was feeling about that. You know, a bunch of high school guys, you don't, necessarily have the emotional intelligence to do that or at least we didn't and so rice just kind of dissolved we didn't we didn't have a conversation about it we just didn't meet up for a while and then when we did start meeting up it was kind of similar to what happened with sid barrett where just nobody called him yeah you know and that's that's a thing that i still have regrets about you know, cause me and this guy are still friends and we would still get together and make music by ourselves. You know, it, it wasn't a situation like this where he had fallen into the depths of mental illness and drug addiction. It wasn't anything that serious, but I think that just, you know, a bunch of creative types trying to get together and make music. And, you know, when you're that young too, you think like, Oh, this is it. This is going to be the thing that I do for the rest of my life. And for some people it is, but for most of us, it's going to be a thing that you have to kind of fight for or figure out for a long time. And it's not going to be an overnight success. And so I think that kind of makes it complicated, but that's, I think that's what drove a lot of their regrets and a lot of the emotion behind wish you were here uh, because you can read about it. They all felt, I think a lot of guilt about just sort of abandoning him in favor of, you know, making Pink Floyd a success. Um, and it's, I don't know. It's, I, I have been in a really small version of that situation and even that sucks, you know? Yeah, and I think we'll talk about that a little bit more here later, kind of the emotional um, side of this and the recording process. Um, but before we do that, I do want to talk a little bit about uh, kind of the post-Dark Side of the Moon, you know, before this album came out, where where'd the band go? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was released, Dark Side of the Moon was released in 73, and uh, it was the biggest thing since Lice Bread as far as rock and roll goes. No. Uh, it launched uh, Pink Floyd from playing small venues to playing just the biggest shows that they could possibly play. And after, after this album was released, the band just kind of took a break. They, they, you know, to talk about, you know, Sid being kind of shut out, they all kind of went and did their own things for a couple of years. And uh, from uh, June 73 to October of 74, they weren't together. They weren't touring. They weren't writing stuff. Um, And then they got together uh, in the end of 74 to work on recording a project called Household Objects, I believe. Yeah. And uh, I'm not familiar with it at all. I I mean, nobody really is that much except for them (laughs) because they didn't release it. There you go. uh, I think uh, everything that you read about it kind of indicates 
like it, it, it's it's kind of the most it's stereotypical pink. pink Floyd there could be. Just like an idea that probably in their head was so lofty and like a really fascinating exploration of musical possibility. And they're like plinking around on rubber bands and like pots and pans trying to make this album. You know, it's not a surprise it didn't come together, you know? So, so reading about this album, and this is an aside we can cut if we have to for time, but uh, reading this album reminds me of one of my favorite musical comedy movies, uh, Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. Yes. When he's recording his dream album. Uh-huh. Uh, that's what this sounded like, Pink Floyd trying to do that. And I want an army of didgeridoos. 50,000 didgeridoos. Oh, man. Yeah, that's, I bet you, I bet you that's as close as you can get to listening to it. <laughs> it's, it's funny to me, like, the, you read how they, the guys in the band felt about it, and they'll mention, like, oh, yeah, well, we were able to use some of that. I think the only thing they used was some, you know, how you can put water in a wine glass mm-hmm. and then, like, put some water around it. I think they used some of that at the beginning of shine on you crazy diamond. And that's it. They spent, <laughs> what is that? Like four or five months working on like pots and pans, the album and <laughs> nothing came of it. We need more didgeridoos. But I, I mean, <laughs> the see didgeridoos would have helped. I think. <laughs> uh, and if you're in Australia, it's a household object. So they would have, they would have been able to make it work. But you know, I, what do you do after you make, the biggest album in the world. Like it's easy to poke fun at them because it's hilarious. Like mm-hmm. four English dudes in a house with microphones and forks, but like I wouldn't have known what to do. You know what I mean? Like it's a real challenge once you've made it as big as you could, which they had, like, what do you do after that? You know? Well, and what I thought was interesting is they decided to get back together and record another album. And they didn't really know what they were going to record, but they decided they were going to get together at Abbey Road Studios. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting to me about that was maybe the unstated symbolism of Sid Barrett early in his life was a huge Beatles fan. When Beatlemania was gripping the world and they were recording their albums and were all over the place... Uh, Sid wanted to be like the Beatles was one of his Mm. things often stated in interviews and here the band is they get back together and they recorded Abbey Road, which if anybody's familiar with it, it's tiny. So you've got to want to go there. Yeah. And uh, so I thought that was interesting and they ended up knocking out this album. Yeah. It's interesting to me that you made that connection. I had never thought of that because they were recording their first album, uh, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, at the same time that uh, the Beatles were doing Sgt. Pepper's. Mm -hmm. And if you listen to Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which I did while I was typing up the show doc, because it's it's a fun album. Sid Barrett was a real creative guy. And, you know, it does not have the kind of polish and brilliance that the Beatles brought to Sgt. Pepper's because nobody is like that. But you can definitely hear like their experimental spacey psychedelic tendencies came from Sid Barrett. Like he was the guy who started them 
on that path. And so I, I don't know. That's just, it, that is a neat note that you bring up that they recorded at Abbey road. And that was like Sid Barrett's like very much related to his identity. Well, and the, the one thing that kind of stuck out to me about the reason I made that connection was I was reading, um, Sid Barrett, like his second band ever was a Beatles cover band in 1963. No kidding. Yes. They just did Beatles covers at like parties and picnics and whatnot. So they're worse gigs. Oh yeah. I mean, those are some fun tunes. The writing of this album, you know, uh, was, you know, we talked about them being on a break. The writing of it was just as like fraught and chaotic, I think, as where their personal lives were at the time, both their relationship to each other as a band. But I mean, also just looking at um, Nick Mason was their drummer was going through a divorce. Um, I think Roger Waters was either going through a divorce or was a uh, or had already. Mm-hmm. And on top of all that, they had to break up recording uh, to do American tours yep. that were kind of super crazy and chaotic. Uh, you know, there's a bit in the wall in the film where the band has to run through a police barricade to get to their own show. And that was a thing that actually happened that they had to do on these tours that kind of broke up the recording of which you were here. Um, so it, it I don't know. In one way, it's incredible that they even got something as coherent as Wish You Were Here together at all. You know, that that was something that was impressive to me because I didn't know all the backstory about it. You know, you kind of look at these monolithic albums and think like, oh, yeah, they just sprang from the void fully formed and there was like no work involved. Well, actually, this like thing almost didn't even come together. Well, and, you know, when we first picked this album, I had forgotten that it was only five tracks. And it's essentially a 26-minute, you know, ode to Sid Barrett and kind of their feelings, you know, towards him Mm -hmm. uh, with a couple of songs sandwiched in the middle that raises some some interesting ethical questions about the recording industry and making profit-based decisions. But the fact that it's so compact track wise that they're telling that linear thing in 45 minutes is just mind blowing to see how fragmented they were as a group to come up with something so cohesive. Cause one thing flows into the other, into the other, uh, you don't realize that 45 minutes has gone by when the album starts playing again and you're like, Oh shoot, it started over again. Yeah. This album is brilliant for that, you know, because it feels I, I can, when I was listening to this album, I thought of the film Blade Runner mm-hmm. a lot because Blade Runner is a film that has real weird pacing. It's very slow. If you, I mean, for, even for the audience, original Blade Runner or Blade Runner from like two years ago that sucked. Uh, that movie didn't suck. Nice try. <laughs> okay, but, we're good. <laughs> we'll save that for our uh, movie podcast. No, but uh, the original OG Blade Runner. There we go. Um, yeah, 
you know, and I've, I've watched it at home, and I promise I will get to the point. But you watch it at home, and it's boring sometimes. If you're not in the right mood, Blade Runner is just a boring movie, as good as it is. But Megan and I went and saw it in theaters, and, boy, it just sucks you into its mood, its atmosphere. Everything is soaked in rain and soot and grime. Um, and then before you know it, it's over. Mm-hmm. And I, I just felt like Wish You Were Here was the same way. They created this thing that is so tight and works so coherently and perfectly. And you get sucked into this world and then all of a sudden it's over. Um, and it's, it is incredible to me. I keep saying it, but it really is incredible to me that they were able to pull this thing together despite... You know, like what one of the things I read about was that because Nick Mason was going through a divorce, he was just kind of detached from everything. He wasn't really interested. And uh, Gilmore kind of strikes me as the Paul McCartney type where he's like real like, all right, let's get in and get this thing done. And so I think that was like a big source of personal friction for the band was even just trying to get the drum parts together and that kind of thing. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't this the first album that Roger Waters kind of took the lead on writing everything for? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that only drives a little bit more of that creative uh, friction. Yeah. You you will read often, all the band members kind of agree, I think, that Dark Side of the Moon was the last time they all functioned as a unit and were super happy and excited Mm-hmm. Um, which is, you know, they made three other albums after that that were huge successes artistically and commercially. Uh, but this is definitely where Roger Waters kind of starts to take the reins. And um, with this album, I think it works because, boy, the lyrics on all five of these tracks are just like smashing success after smashing success. One of the things I really love about this album, and I don't say that lightly, um, is what I perceive as the overall lack of lyrics. So Mm -hmm. the idea that it's okay to not say anything and let the music just convey the message. Like you are in it the whole time. You feel everything that they're saying without saying anything. And when they need to use words, they just use the perfect words to convey mm-hmm. their message. Yeah. And I think as a band, that shows a lot of confidence in who you are musically and who you are philosophically. Like to just shut up and let the music carry the moment takes a lot of guts. And they did a lot of that on this album. Yeah. That's, that's a thing that David Gilmore talks about he loves the balance between the music telling the story and the lyrics telling the story and i i love this album for that Mm -hmm. because they really take time to sit in the sadness and the misery and the guilt of everything that happened with sid barrett and they also take time to get 
angry and kind of bite the hand that fed them a little bit, which is really interesting too, because, uh, and I think this is something they were kind of criticized for, Oh, like stop whining about your problems. But you know, they had been run ragged for a couple of years running around the face of the earth touring this album and getting jerked around by, um, record labels and the media trying to like, you know, that was another thing is they didn't have a super great relationship with the media. Cause I mean, would you want to, you know, to have people constantly hounding you and asking you question after question. Um, but they sit in all of those feelings with music as well as words. Um, and I know I kind of like dumped on Roger Waters when we talked about the wall, but, he is the better lyricist out of, I mean, between him and David Gilmore, Waters writes just some real beautiful, beautiful lyrics. And I think this is the best that he's written. I think it's a good thing that he wrote the whole thing because it has a coherence that, you know, wouldn't have been there if somebody else had kind of watered down that vision. No pun intended. (laughs) Well, and I wonder, so we did not rate The Wall favorably in the end. I think we both kind of enjoyed the album, but it wasn't that great in the end. Yeah. Uh, And that was disappointing to me since it was from my list, of course, from memory. Mm -hmm. But in listening to this album, if there had been half as much lyrical content on The Wall, would we have felt differently about it? If it had been more about the music that was backing those lyrics, would we have given Mm -hmm. it a better rating? Um, And maybe that was some of some surfacing insecurity in the form, you know, for Roger Waters trying to cover up for the fact that he knew things weren't going so great for Pink Floyd. I mean, that album ended up ending the band as they knew it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's a good point because one of the things that I remember reading about The Wall is that um i think gilmore in particular was unhappy with how much of the music roger waters kind of had control over because something you'll kind of notice if you listen to roger waters solo stuff and even his stuff in the wall kind of points this out he he has a limited range, not only vocally, but like a limited range of melodies that he can, that he's capable of, you know, like he, um, he doesn't write the best music all the time. That's what makes Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd is Rick Wright and David Gilmore write really beautiful chord progressions can come up with great melodies, that kind of thing. Um, And so I think that's why this album works so well. And the wall for us anyway, didn't is because it's a more even marriage of David Gilmore and Richard Wright's musical sensibilities and Roger Waters really um, like deeply sorrowful lyrics, real, poetic kind of hallucinatory imagery and things like shine on you crazy diamond really kind of sad 
angry, hopeless stuff and welcome to the machine. You know, like you need both. Uh, it's that kind of magic that makes bands like Led Zeppelin and the Beatles so great is because each individual member brings something. And that's why solo acts aren't always great is because the secret sauce is four or five guys. It's not one guy, you know, definitely. And I feel like you can feel one of the things that I wanted to mention about kind of going back to the Sid Barrett timeline here is while they were recording this album, he came to the studio and visited them on uh, June 5th of 1975. So yeah, fairly early in the recording process of this album, and it left a mark that the rest of the band has talked about for years to come, mentioning it in interviews and retrospectives about how he showed up, he was way overweight, and he just wasn't the same person. There was obviously a lot going on with him, mentally mm-hmm. and when they were playing uh music that would eventually end up on the album uh like the song wish you were here or shine on you crazy diamond he didn't connect what they were talking about with him mm-hmm. uh that you know they figured it was going to be this powerful tribute and he was going to be moved emotionally and he just wasn't he was just a shell of who he had been before and i feel like that one experience is probably the most informed experience of this album because mm-hmm. I feel their sadness at that meeting in Abbey Road with him throughout the whole album. Yeah. Even when they're not directly talking about him, like that just set the tone for the whole album. Yeah, there's there's a through line of just profound loss and you know, the kind of separation from a fellow person that they were feeling, I think is what connects a lot of people to their music. They get criticized often about being kind of a cold cerebral band. Um, But this is them at their most human, Mm -hmm. you know, they are coping with this great success that I'm sure had some really, really great things about it. But when it came down to it, you know, how much of this album was them? I mean, the name of the album is Wish You Were Here. I'm sure that they all wished that Sid Barrett had just made it Mm -hmm. to that point with them because that's what he wanted as much as anybody else did was to write this kind of music and be there with them. Um it's this, this album is very powerful it is, for that. It is very emotional. And even not knowing anything about Pink Floyd's backstory and the fact that this is kind of them moving on or trying to move on, mm-hmm. uh, just listening to it for what it is without knowing anything about it is still a very emotional album um, with probably some of the greatest lyrics in the history of all rock and roll. Um, Easily. I, there's a, there's a phrase that uh, I've used with my wife for years and she, I don't think she knows where it comes from, but when she listens to this episode, she'll finally get it. And that's, we're just two lost souls living in a fl- fish bowl. Oh man. Uh, oh, like, that's... It just works so well. 
It really does. Um, yeah, this this album is what makes me not just immediately angry at Roger Waters for being an arrogant jerk all the time. Because you know what? That man has earned it. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you should not ever treat people poorly, but, uh, man, I'm frantically Googling to get to the lyrics of Shine On You Crazy Diamond because that, the the imagery, you know, uh, remember when you were young, you shone like the sun. Uh, now there's a look in your eyes like black holes in the sky. Just really simple direct like that imagery is just so striking uh caught on the crossfire of char- childhood and stardom well um, and i want to interject there a little bit i think yeah mental illness is something that we kind of wash over as a society or historically mm-hmm. have and to the to the disgrace of society as a whole you know, yeah. and we have all at some point or another had a friend or a family member who has been plagued with mental health issues. And mm. that's why that line is so poignant. So in in the mode, I honestly, if you showed me a picture of Sid Barrett, I probably couldn't pick him out of a lineup. But mm-hmm. I can picture my uncle or my cousin or any number of people in my life who I have felt that same way about at some point. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons that this album is so powerful is it's not just, Hey Sid, we love you. We wish you were here. It's, it's the perfect, we all regret something and wish somebody was with us from before. Mm -hmm. It's really an artful way that this song explores those ideas because waters doesn't settle on, you know, there are any number of directions that you could go, right? You could glorify him as this brilliant sage who knew the secrets of the world and it drove him mad. Well, that's not honest. And, you know, you could characterize him as like this poor pathetic person, but that's not fair to him either. You know, Waters manages to talk about all the things that a person is and how they could struggle with mental illness. Uh, Like the very end of the first, you know, shine on you, you crazy diamond part one. He says, come on, you painter, you piper, you prisoner and shine. There's just a lot of, a lot of different ways that waters addresses him come on you stranger you legend you martyr and shine um it's it's uniquely artful to me that he was able to explore in really in language that we could all connect to mm-hmm. how barrett's illness and their estrangement from him affected him and you know really like was painful for everybody involved you know it's this this album is really impressive i don't think i've said it 
I think I've probably said it too much and you'll have to cut a few impressives and interestings out of the recording, but I think you've done pretty good on interestings this week. So Uh, I'm always, that's (laughs) your go-to word. I hate it with a passion. If the, if you uh, listeners, if you notice awkward pauses, um, it's because I'm desperately groping for another word, like anything (laughs) but cool or interesting. Or amazing. That's mine. Yeah. So let's, oh, let's get no. past that That's now. That's the worst. Amazing. Cool. We we could not have uh, a drinking game with amazing. You would all die of liver failure before one episode was over. Oh, boy. So I wanted to talk about the album artwork a little bit. If only to give credit where credit is due. Storm Thorgerson mm-hmm. uh, was the artist... He was in a graphic art group called Hypnosis, and that's Gnosis with a G because uh, they were, you know, super intellectuals. Uh, but he designed a ton of great album artwork. So Dark Side of the Moon, Audio Slaves, Out of Exile, T-Rex's Electric Warrior, you know, the like matte black, but with like a like golden rimmed yep. dude playing a guitar and um, Led Zeppelin's Houses of the Holy, you know, with all those like little naked kids climbing up yep. the mountain or whatever. Um, but he really, you know, the emotional through line of this album he picked up on. And so that's all the imagery that you see on the artwork from the two robotic hands. Uh, you know, a handshake is very often, unfortunately, an empty gesture between people. Um, and the the black cellophane that was on the album artwork, that was another thing. They had obscured the album. The album was absent. Um, and pretty much my favorite album artwork of all time is the uh the dude on fire the two businessmen one of them on fire mm-hmm. uh, again a repetition of that uh empty handshake type of thing so i just wanted to i, I just wanted to pay some tribute to that because it is everything about this album clicks even the artwork and that's super rare you know that is, uh, that is definitely a good add to the discussion because, like I said, the artwork is classic. It's all time. It's been around for forever. And even if I'm the dummy who didn't recognize it beforehand, when I saw it, I was like, oh, yeah, this makes nah, sense. You're, you're not a dummy. If you don't know, you don't know. Well, hey, let's talk about the singles for this album for a moment. Being as there's only five tracks, they had to be pretty limited uh, mm-hmm. Have a Cigar and Welcome to the Machine both were released on November 15th, 1975. One of the things that I thought was interesting, um, I remember being a teenager here in San Antonio and this album playing like every other Friday night at midnight, like the whole album start to finish, just classic rock at midnight. They'd drop a record and play the whole thing. And this album was continually on the radio even into my teenage years that's cool so i don't know that that it doesn't really count as a single but it was the whole album was played in its entirety for years when i was a teenager oh that's the dream is to hear something like that rest in peace kzep 104.5 oh is 104.5 no no longer around Nah, it's like a tejano station or something now 
Oh, it makes me sad that it's not around anymore. I list that was probably the radio station in San Antonio that I listened to the most. 104.5 K Zip. That's right, it's gone. Gone. It's all gone. Oh, it's gone. Bye bye. Woo see ya. Let's talk about the critical reception. I see you've got a couple of notes about that. Yeah, so the critical reception to this album was wrong. That is what <laughs> I have decided. It was incorrect. They missed the mark I'm back gonna, in the day. I'm going to disagree with you because the review scores I saw for this album are phenomenal. Oh, well, it's it's been like reevaluated as one of Pink Floyd's greatest albums. But uh, the Rolling Stone article in particular of the time, uh, Ben Edmonds wrote, Shine On You Crazy Diamond is initially credible because it purports to confront the subject of Sid Barrett. But the potential of the idea goes unrealized. They give such a matter-of-fact reading that they might as well be singing about Roger Waters' brother-in-law getting a parking ticket. (laughs) (laughs) And that's funny, like, good for the writer. But, man, like, could they have missed the point anymore? You know, like, I, I don't know if maybe just there was so much going on in music at the time that maybe they just weren't ready for something so slow paced and contemplative. I don't know. What what do you think? Cause that his his review just made me angry. It goes back to probably the idea of, you know, a lot of people who review things generally can't do it well. And so when they're Mm -hmm. confronted with something that is done exceptionally well, they've got to find something not to like about it. Yeah. Um, it goes back to kind of the comments that I made a couple of weeks ago about a professor who wouldn't give a hundred to any project period. You know, nobody has ever gotten an A in my class kind of thing yeah. because they're just bitter and butthurt about their <laughs> own life. And to kind of contrast that Robert Kiskow, who we seem to like always pull his reviews, yeah. uh, wrote for the village voice uh, at the time that the music is simple and attractive especially by the standards of the psychedelic sound effects tradition with the synthesizer used mostly for texture and the guitar breaks for comment. In fact, I'm astonished to to conclude that this is a very good record. A bunch of years later, he revised this review uh, using a a grade scale. He gave this album an A minus. Mm. So he liked it then and he liked it, you know, 20 years later when he was doing his own, his own music review project. Um, I just think that that is, it's, it's dead on across the board. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. It's kind of funny. The, uh, Rolling Stone article, uh, was interspersed with comments from people who had just bought the album. And the one that is most baffling to me. Uh, was they found some schmuck who just bought it and they said, when I first bought it, I was really down on it. It's growing on me a little bit, but I don't think it's as Pink Floyd as Pink Floyd can be. That's interesting because David Gilmour and Rick Wright both say this is the best album Pink Floyd ever released. Yeah, and I I think they're right. You know, it's, I think good art like this sometimes rubs people the wrong way. I can think of any number of bands that I've listened to that at first I thought like, ugh, what is this? I don't really like it. But then, you know, a few days later or whatever, 
you start thinking about that song or that album and you go like, Oh, I kind of want to listen to that again. You put it back in. And then before you know it, it's a band that you really love because like art kind of confronts us with things that we don't necessarily either. We don't want to confront it or it's telling us a story in a way that we aren't used to, you know? And so it takes time to like adjust to that. Well, and it may open a door we didn't even know exists. And so our initial Mm -hmm. impression is to slam it shut, lock it and hide it over there in the corner. Um, But then as time passes, as the ideas marinate, one of the things that I learned a long time ago was, uh, I think I've even mentioned it on another episode is don't yuck somebody's yum. Yeah. Um, Where if somebody says they really like something, you need to just let them like it and move on. Like it doesn't, it's no skin off your back if somebody likes something. Yeah. But the idea of letting an idea marinate in your own mind long enough to go, Oh, wait a minute. I get this. I understand this. Uh, and I felt that way with a couple of the albums we've reviewed in the past where I didn't necessarily like them when they first came out, but as my life has advanced and as I've grown and as I've experienced more life and tied things back to those earlier experiences, it's like, Oh, this really works. Yeah. Yeah. I think that a lot of good art like that, if it's, if it is strong enough, you will return to it because it's stuck in your subconscious. You know what I mean? And you will go back and reinterpret it. At least you hope you do. This album definitely stuck in society subconscious. Um, as of, uh, writing this show, Doc, it's sold more than 20 million copies worldwide. It's six times platinum in the United States. And according to Rolling Stones, it's like the 209th record uh, rock album of all time. Uh, but commercially, it's one of the top 50 greatest success in terms of album sales. So they they hit it out of the park for a second time after Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah, so somebody liked it, even if... Uh, even if Ben Edmonds from Rolling Stone eh. said that he didn't get it. Eh. Well, in that case, let's figure out what uh, what your review was for this album. To remind our audience, we use a scale of one to six guitar strings, one being just an absolutely terrible uh, album, and six strings being the greatest album of all time. Uh, what did you think, Chris? Uh, so I thought of a lot of different pieces of art like this when I was listening to this album. I don't know if that's just leftovers from college trying to relate different schools of thought to each other or whatever. But I thought of Blade Runner, like I mentioned. Then I thought of an Ursula K. Le Guin novel called The Left Hand of Darkness. And in the interest of time and me not rambling on about the synopsis of the story, I will just say it was a very contemplative, slow-burning story that left me with a lot of things to think about, even if the album or the novel wasn't packed with a ton of events. And this is an album that does that so well. It's my favorite thing when a piece of art can just kind of slowly unpack what it is and what it's trying to say. Um, 
you know, and we've mentioned also that this album is closer to 50-50 music versus lyrics. Mm -hmm. Instead of the music being a set dressing, which is appropriate, you know, that not every song, not every album needs to be this big musical opus. Um, but this album needed to be that. And it is by far and away better for the amount of time that they take to unpack all their regret, um, their feelings of frustration against the music industry and their feelings of sadness and loss over their friend. Um, so six out of six strings like that, that is what this album has to be. I think if I rated it any less, it would mean that I wasn't paying attention. How did you feel about it? I feel like the subject matter of this album is what brought the band to unity. Um, at the end of, you know, at the end of the day, the fact that everybody had kind of the same emotional connection to Sid and the fact that the band was trying to move on and do bigger and greater things apart from him who had been their creative force. And this is one of those albums that it caught lightning in a bottle. Uh, they'd done it with Dark Side of the Moon and they were successfully able to do it again with this album despite everything they had going against them. It speaks to me on a ton of levels. Um, it's both an abstract, progressive rock album, but it's also got a very concrete, tight, familiar feel to it. And I wish I'd been alive when it was released and cognizant of where rock music was at the time. Because when I compare it to um, the album that we listened to uh, earlier this week um, for... Uh, uh, pardon me, I'm drawing a total blank on their name... Um, Chikoria, Return Chikoria, Forever. Thank you, thank you. Oh my goodness. I feel dumb <laughs> you now. Get it. I got but, you. But when I compare it to that, it has a very concrete feeling, progressively speaking. Um, but it remains classic in its rock undertones. When the guitars are cutting through all those synthesizers, when, when the drums are playing, I feel an emotional connection to what's happening, even when they're not talking. When there's no lyrics... There's an emotional connection to the music itself, and you feel the heartbreak and the, you know, not to be too, like, psychology 101, but I feel the five stages of grief in this album mm -hmm. uh, throughout the course of the album. And even when you hear radio versions of this album on the radio today, when you turn on the radio and you hear... Uh, a shortened version of Shine On You Crazy Diamond or Have a Cigar. Those are songs that I've been familiar with even in a radio sense over the years. Um, it has both a quality and a hopefulness that balances out kind of the brokenness. And I'm probably making a horrible mess of this right now saying it because it's such a dichotomy uh, across all of it. Um it just has left a really big imprint on me uh, as a person. I can hear that pain. I can hear the the lyrical eulogy to Sid and kind of the gratefulness that they had as a group towards Sid uh, as they were trying to move on. 
And I just think if you haven't listened to this album, it's probably the best 45 minutes of your life you can spend right now towards something because mm-hmm. it is so much more than just 45 minutes of Pink Floyd plucking around on a guitar in Abbey Road. Um, yeah. This is a six-string album, too. I absolutely wholeheartedly believe that. Yeah, I am glad that you brought up Catharsis because on the topic of the music being a way that the band communicates as much as the lyrics, if you listen all the way through to the end of uh, the second half of Shine On You Crazy Diamond, it ends on a major chord, Mm -hmm. on a real happy chord and it's just this chord and the synth being held out and Rick Wright kind of improvising and it's very pastoral Mm -hmm. it's very peaceful and so I'm not sure what kind of catharsis the band came to or if they came to one at all Um, but that music that is kind of a bizarrely happy hopeful note for them to strike that I'm glad that they do it's it's very human and kind of more optimistic than you usually hear from Pink Floyd. And that's one of the things that makes it so great. So I think it's safe to say this week, we probably don't have a favorite track, least favorite track because there's a only five tracks and B we've already said, this is pretty much the perfect album. Yeah. We enjoyed the first five tracks of this album. Those are my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Well, we have worn out our welcome with random precision. What is in store for us next week? So let's go to the great Oracle in the cloud. We're picking from my list this week. Uh, So let's see what we get when I press the randomized number right now. All right, Chris. So number 21 came up, which on my list is an anthology. It's uh, George Strait's 50 number ones. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to hate all of that. <laughs> he's a good, he's a good, good old boy. This is one of those albums. Oh. And just as an aside to prep our audience, it's 50 number one songs by George Strait. I could not pick just an album by George Strait. Cause I feel like he's more of the singles kind of guy. So here are the 50 best singles he's ever released. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, for the most part, I don't have any more anthologies on the list, so uh, this will be kind of a one-and-done for me kind of thing at this point in time. Yeah, I'm not sure if I have any anthologies either, but, it you know, 50 tracks, even if Radio Country is not my thing, I am bound and determined to find, like, at least five to seven songs. I'm like, yeah. That was really good. Nice, man. Well, we will see you next week. Thank you for joining us. 